All right, well, this evening we'll be in Psalm chapter 14. We'll, we'll be looking at the 14th Psalm. And if you recall, as we study the Psalms, uh, that uh, we're, we're looking at wisdom Psalms. We talked about what a wisdom Psalm is in the first, uh, in the first message of this year-long series, basically. Um, and uh, now we're just looking at some different examples of the wisdom Psalms. And so Psalm 15, 14 is another one of those. Um, we're actually going to be in three different places, though. Um, Psalm 14 will also be in Romans 3 and Genesis 32. Uh, so Psalm 14 is the wisdom psalm we're looking at. Romans 3 um, is kind of commentary to it. Uh, we should always interpret Scripture with Scripture. We, we let, uh, that's called plenary inspiration. We believe that the, uh, the entire story is uh, one whole story, that it's not disjointed or compartmentalized. Um, that it's all developed from uh, everything that came before it. And, um, and then at the end of the psalm, there's an illustration or a hint, I think, at what the psalmist intends his readers to uh, go to for an example of what he's getting at. And uh, I think that that, uh, that story or illustration is in Genesis 32, so we'll go there. So Psalm 14, it says, for the director of music of David. So this is a psalm of David, a, a psalm that David wrote. Um, and he is once again writing about the difference between foolishness and wisdom. And so this is a classic wisdom psalm. Psalm 14 verse 1 begins, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. Now, uh, I was thinking when I was, when I was in, uh, I think when I was in high school, uh, Mr. T, you know, pity the fool, and uh, that was Mr. T, right? Yeah, okay. I was getting just a couple different different guys with mohawks and uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> pity the fool. And so, but it's uh, or or it also was popular to to walk around and say like, "What's up, fool?" Like, you know, do you remember that in the '90s? So that was a popular phrase or whatever. But when the Bible says "fool," it's not nice. <laughs> it's it's not nice. There's actually three different Hebrew words that get translated as fool or some version of fool in the Psalms and the Proverbs. The worst one, um, the worst Hebrew word gets translated most often scoffer or mocker, the fool that is a scoffer or a mocker. And that's the person that is anti-God. That's Satan in the Garden of Eden saying, I know, that, I know what God says and I don't care because what I say is better. Like that's the scoffer or the mocker. And then there's the, there's the Hebrew word that means the simple. And the simple are just like... Uh, People who lack experience, who are naive, um, who don't know any better. And honestly, uh, the southern phrase, bless your heart, is a fantastic way to think about the simple. Uh, if your heart gets blessed, it's because you're a fool, but you didn't know any better, right? You know, you say, bless your heart, it's because you did something foolish, but you didn't know any better. So, um, in between the two, in between the simple and the scoffer and the mocker, is uh, the Hebrew word that we have here in Psalm 14, which is the person who knows better, but um, in, a, in a more temporary than the scoffer or mocker moment, does, does it anyway. They know better, but they do it anyway. Um, literally, the Hebrew word here means morally deficient. Um, so, if scoffer and mocker is Satan in the Garden of Eden, uh, the fool here is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Okay, So, they know what God said. They believe, but then, but then they choose in a moment of of foolishness, they choose to believe the lie that maybe God didn't say that, or maybe God was hiding something, and they choose to allow the deception to be the truth. 
Uh, they, they knew that God was good. They knew his command. They knew his blessing. And they didn't mock God. They didn't say, I don't care. They just said, in this moment, I kind of want to see what that fruit tastes like. That's a fool who knows better, but does it anyway. Uh, they willfully, if you will, forgot God. So like Moses admonishes the Israelites, when you're in the land of, uh, that's flowing with milk and honey, don't forget the Lord your God. And then, then the choices that the Israelites make would be this kind of fool. They know God. They've seen His presence. They've seen His power. They've seen His deliverance. But then they choose to do it, to do their own way. Anyway, they choose to accept the lie as the truth. And Yeah. Israel again and again, and eventually Israel grows to this place. See, here's the thing, is this is progressive. If you're simple and you don't gain wisdom, and this is the whole point of Proverbs. Proverbs says to the simple, he says to his sons, he says, listen, I don't want you to be simple. I want you to treat wisdom as though she is a prized treasure. Pursue wisdom because if you don't, you'll eventually start to make choices that it will lead you to be a scoffer or a mocker. And that's what the whole Old Testament does. So, um, they knew better, but they willfully forgot God. And this is the kind of fool you and me are too, right? <laughs> we're, we're this kind of fool. We, we make these choices in our daily life, and the warnings of the wisdom literature is, hey, if you keep doing that, you will end up in a way in where your heart has turned fully against God. Modern-day foolishness, another example. For, uh, the text gives an example, but modern-day foolishness, I would say smoking cigarettes in 2023 is modern-day foolishness. Like, I'm not mad at anybody, and I'm not saying that you're not welcome here, but the Bible says you're a fool, because on every box of cigarettes, it says, you know you're going to die if you do this, right? You know that if you smoke these, your face is going to rot off, and your lungs are literally going to die. But then, when you pick it up anyway, and you smoke it, and say, well, I'm going to do it anyway, that's the kind of foolishness. It's not like World War II, where they handed them out like Tic Tacs, and you just didn't know it was going to kill you. It says on the box, you're going to die. Like, the Surgeon General has said, we can't get in, in, in a capitalist country, we can't get in the way of them selling them, but this is what it will do to your body. Now, there's probably a lot of other things that some warning labels should be on. We're becoming more and more aware of all kinds of things. That, uh, uh, but bottom line is, when we know what something does to us, that's like when I, when I eat the third donut, you know? It's just, okay, like, so just, just so we're not, just so that... Yeah, yeah. Well, not those donuts. I'm talking like a Big O's donut. If you have Big O's donuts, they put so much jelly in one donut that like you are set for the week. You don't need to eat another donut. <laughs> so, so I mean, so I guess I should. I I don't want to judge anybody too specifically because man, I had a third cinnamon roll today. There were some cinnamon rolls at staff meeting, and I ate two of them. That was already too many. And then I was like, but those are going to go to waste, and they taste too good to go to waste, and they're fresh right now. That's foolishness. That was foolish on my part, which is another reason that I don't feel a need to just rush to my dinner right now. So, uh, <laughs> well, the text gives another example. The text says the fool who knows better but does it anyway is the one who says there's no God, the one who says there is no God. Now, 4% uh, of Americans call themselves atheist or agnostic. Um, which is no God versus not sure. Like an atheist says, there, I know for sure there's no God. An agnostic says, well, there might be a God, but I don't know who it is or really how to, uh, how to be in relationship with him. And so I'm agnostic. To be determined. TBD. Um, worldwide, there's about 2% of the population world, worldwide um, is atheist. Uh, the average, interestingly, this is, there's a disparity in American atheism and... The, and uh, 
or, or there's a disparity in atheism worldwide and in Christianity, uh, that the average atheist is a very educated white male in an affluent country, a country that is a first world country, a country that has a self-sustaining economy. Most atheists, the ones who have the luxury of believing that there is no higher power that's going to ever intervene for their situation, get this, the average Christian worldwide is a woman of color in a developing country. So when people talk down about Christians and how they're so antiquated, who they're really talking about is a woman of color uh, in a developing country. So when I read that, I was like, man, put that in your progressive anti-religion pipe and spoke, smoke it. Like, the people want to paint Christianity as like anti-the poor, anti-the whatever, but the truth is, it's atheism that is anti. You have, you have the luxury to believe that there is no God and there is no higher moral system and that it's all humanistic. Um, but it's when you're desperate that the only hope you have is that there's a Savior. And that's actually what this psalm is going to get into. And uh, what, what the psalmist says is, the fool is the one who says there is no God. Nietzsche, 140 years ago, he said God is dead. Now, uh, really, his ideas deserve some reading to better understand the atheistic um, foundation, but bottom line is 140 years later, Nietzsche's dead, and God's doing just fine. So, um, <laughs> Pastor Joby Martin, he says, man can no more diminish God's glory than a lunatic can blot out the sun by scribbling the words darkness on the walls of his cell. Um, now, here's what's really interesting, and this is, this is why I brought up atheism in the first place, because when you read these verses in the Hebrew, there is, the words there is, so it says there is no God, the words there is are added for the English translation. The way that it actually reads in Hebrew is the fool says in his heart, no God. The fool says in his heart, no God. Now, what's really incredibly clever about what David has written here is, again, the way that the line no God reads. You could read it two different ways. You could read it, the fool says in his heart, no God. There is no God, the way that it's translated. But you can also read it as, the fool says in its heart, no God, I won't do that. Okay? So uh, it's not just those, what, what David very cleverly draws out, is it's not just those that say in their head, God doesn't exist, but it's those that say no to God in their heart. The heart in uh, Hebrew literature is to be understood as your will, your emotions, and your desires. So the atheist is not just the person who says God doesn't exist, but the atheist is the one who knows better, but lives as if he doesn't. A fool knows better, but does it anyway. No God, right? Lots of Christians who go through all, there are a lot of Christians who go through all emotions, but practically speaking are atheists. That's the premise of a book written by Craig Groeschel called The Christian Atheist. Um, you say in your head, of course there's a God, but the way you live equals no God, not going to do that. So you can be a theological genius, but a practical fool because you're living as if there's no God, even though you believe it in your head. So there's all kinds of ways. Like uh, the scriptures again and again and again talk about one of the primary ways to understand which kingdom we're seeking is what the way that we spend, uh, save, and give our money. 
And so uh, in, a lot, in a lot of cases, there are people who say, I believe in God, but they're not seeking the first the kingdom of God. They're seeking first the kingdom of self. Or when it comes to our comfort, when it comes to the disciplines of discipleship, that when we gather together for corporate prayer, that, uh, that we're more worried about what people will think than what our Heavenly Father will, will be offered. Or when, we, when it comes to the Great Commission that says to go, or as you are going, make disciples. And that really that was the final commission that God has given us, but most of us will go through most of our Christian life without fulfilling that commission, without making a single disciple. And so we, in our comfort, we say, I'm following Jesus, but I'll leave those things for the super followers. But there's no such thing as a super follower. There's just a follower or not a follower, right? Um, or when it comes to worry, and man, this is, I was trying to just kind of like catch the gamut of all the ways that we kind of live. So it, I'm not trying to pick on any one person. Um, but worry. I mean, Jesus said, if you're a believer in God's goodness and power, what are you worried about? Why are you worrying? He actually says at the end of his, of his teaching on worry in the Sermon on the Mount, he says the pagans, or we could, for our context, say the atheists run after all these things. They worry about what am I going to wear and what am I going to eat and will this be taken care of and will that be taken care of because they don't believe that they have a Father in Heaven who takes care of all those details. But not you, Jesus says. You know you have a Father in Heaven who cares about the sparrows and the lilies of the field. So how much more you as a son or daughter of God? So why do you worry? So that's practical atheism, right? When we live like there's no God, even though we say we believe. Now again, we are all growing in grace, right? But this is what, this is what uh, the psalmist says, is we, we must gauge our heart to see where we might be living differently than what we know. Um, so there are a lot of people professing Christians but living in areas in their lives as practical atheists. Actually, uh, something, something that people don't, sometimes don't know, the crusaders, when they were uh, perpetrating all kinds of evil in Jesus' name, wearing a cross on their helmet and their chest as they went and killed people in Jesus' name, they would actually get, ba- they would get baptized into the cause and they would go down under the water but hold the sword out as if to say, all this is yours, but this one's for me. They would hold the sword out of the water because they knew that to baptize what they were about to do would be sin. To, because they knew to go and kill people in Jesus' name would be sin. Or at least it would seem that way. In the 21st century, it looks more like two fists out of the water, one about self and one about sexuality. People just want to cling to those primary issues, self and sexuality, selfishness, sexuality. You can be Lord and Savior of my soul, Jesus, but not my stuff and not my pleasure. Not my stuff, not my identity, however you want to read it. Stephen Manley, Stephen Manley is a Nazarene evangelist. I don't know if he originated this saying, but he's the one that I heard it saying growing up. Um, and there's actually a sermon of his that's uh, like circulates on YouTube about uh, being obsessed with Jesus. And in that sermon, he says what I heard him say a number of times uh, when he came to our church, and that is, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, then he isn't Lord at all. Um, and so the passage says, the fool is the one who says, no to God, or acts as if he doesn't exist. And then he says, that, that kind of person is corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's an actual, and then he, then, he, then he makes this crazy statement. He says, actually, now that I think about it, that's where all of us start. There's no one who does good. There's no one who does good. Not even one, you might ask. Well, verse 2 and 3, he says, he says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men, to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Is there any who does any good? And as God observes from his heavenly 
uh, perspective, he sees, all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Yes, not even one. Now, uh, John Calvin, he calls this total depravity. Uh, in the Ar- Wesleyan-Arminian tradition, we say that view is a little bit too hopeless because the, uh, he takes total depravity and, and says there's never, any, there's never any point this side of heaven that there's any hope for our nature to be transformed. Uh, but it is true that you and I and even the cutest little kids are bent and crooked and wicked at our core. I mean, think about this. Who teaches a kid to lie? I, I know that my kids might have picked up some bad habits for me, but I did not teach any of them to lie, as far as I can remember, okay? I didn't, teach, I didn't teach my kid to twist the truth or to leave out details in order to avoid consequences. Uh, did I teach them to bite? Well, maybe, but <laughs> it also seems that there are plenty of kids who figure it out on their own too, right? Um, so Paul, like, like uh, I think a lot of kids learn bad habits at daycare and stuff like that, but they had this. there's always that one kid, you know, that seems to originate the evil, the devil of devils. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But seriously, like we all kind of have this, uh, we, all, we all kind of have this nature somewhere inside of us. And so Paul actually quotes this passage um, as well. Psalm 14, the reason I said we'd go to Romans 3 is because Paul's going to quote this passage there. In Romans 2, Paul is addressing the Jews, and a, a group of Jews in particular, who think that they kind of get to cut in line because of their religious upbringing, because they're children of Abraham, because we have the law, because we have the prophets, because we're the keepers of the covenant. And so Paul is addressing this idea that because of my rich religious upbringing, I can cut in line. And um, the modern day equivalent would be, you know, like, I go to Sunday school, I come to Wednesday night, I go to prayer meeting, you know, like, a lot of y'all, you're, you're involved, like you're here. And so if we start to think that that is, what, is that is what's going to give us favor, this is what Paul has to say to that. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we Jews any better than, he, than the Gentiles I've just talked about? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it is written. And he's kind of going to go through a mixtape here, not just Psalm 14, but you'll see where he quotes Psalm 14. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin, and misery. Mark all their ways in the way of peace they don't know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So like in that little section, he quotes five Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and, uh, and Isaiah. So he's all over the map here, just pointing out that all through Scripture, it's taught that we, left to ourselves, are bent and crooked. And he says, here's the purpose of the law, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So Paul's point here is there is no standard except God's holiness. There's no standard for righteousness except for God's righteousness. He's saying, listen, the law is for anyone who would try and stand before God and list out the reasons why they should get into heaven or why they're better than the last person. Good enough to get in. The, the law is for anyone who would uh, 
try and stack up their deeds. And I think it was, yeah, Sandy Thompson sent me today a joke I've heard before, but uh, a man comes and stands before uh, Peter and says that, uh, and, and, and Peter says, okay, let's start, uh, or, or he comes and stands before Peter and says, all right, how, how many points do I need to get into heaven? And Peter says, well, you need 100. And so they start, they start going down his list. And he says, well, I stayed faithful to one woman for over 60 years and uh, lived with her and loved her, tried to love her sacrificially more and more every day. And Peter says, okay, two points. Good job, two points. And he was like, oh, wow, this is going to take a minute. So then he says, well, okay, I went to Sunday school every day or every, every week and I, I went to Wednesday night Bible study and I gave, I, I gave tithes and offerings. And Peter says, okay, one point, good job. Uh, we're at three. And he's like, well, wow, uh, all right, well, I, I, I was a part of a prison ministry, and I served, I'm sharing your jokes, Andy, and it actually ties in perfectly this evening, so I was in a prison, I was in a prison ministry, and I served, I served relentlessly, loving these, these men and these women, and, and telling them about Jesus, and, and teaching the gospel, and discipling them, and Peter says, well, that's another two points, we're at five, and he's like, man, uh, I tell you, the more I think about it, it's only by the grace of God that anybody's going to get into heaven. And Peter looks at him and says, exactly. 100 points. You're in. <laughs> right? That's, that's, the, that's Paul's point in Romans 3. Is the only standard, the only standard of righteousness is God's holiness. And, and so the only, the only hope that we have is the grace of God. It's not compared to your roommate or the nightly news. You may be crushing it in that event. But compared to Almighty God, no one does good. That's the point here. So back to Psalm 14. The psalmist continues, Will evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as many bread and who do not call on the Lord. There they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. So he says the only way that they're going to learn is when they realize that God's presence will depart from them. Where will God's presence be? It won't be with the foolish evildoers. It will be with the company or the generation of the righteous. Who are the generation of the righteous? If you're paying attention, we need to figure that out because that's the group we want to be in, not the foolish evildoers. That's where God's presence is going to be. And by definition, the generation of the righteous cannot be based on the things that you do because, as the psalmist has already said, no one does good. So how do we join the generation of the righteous? Well, there's a clue in verse 6, and then the answer comes in verse 7. So verse 6 says, You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples come to Jesus and they start asking about the end of the world. Like, when is your kingdom going to come? When is the world going to end and your kingdom be set up forever? And so Jesus, in response, tells three parables in Matthew chapter 25. And the last one is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And basically, um, Jesus says, okay, at the, at the end, there's going to be a judgment. And these are the goats and these are the sheep. Sorry, you're going to hell. Just for now. Uh, just, for, just happened there's more on this side of the room than that side of the room. And there's more goats than sheep. So that's how it played out. Sandy, you broke the tie. There were five and five. So it's your fault. No, just, <laughs> uh, so, the, so, so he says the goats are going to hell. And here's why. Because Jesus doesn't know them. Jesus says when, when you get to judgment, uh, I'll look at the goats and I'll say I didn't know you. And here's why I didn't know you. Because... You, didn't, you clearly didn't know me and the way that I love. You, you clearly had no relationship with me. And the reason I know you had no relationship with me is because of how you treated the poorest and the least. 
The sheep, it says, on the other hand, made it in because the evidence of their relationship with the Father through Jesus is obvious because Jesus' love clearly flowed through them to the poorest and the least. And so that's what separates the sheep and the goats. So the psalmist here is also talking about, he's talking about, he's giving us a clue as to what will um, include us in the generation of the righteous. The psalmist is talking about goats and sheep. He says, you evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor. If you knew the Father's love and if you knew the way that he interacts in the world, you wouldn't frustrate the plans of the poor, but instead you would love and care for the poor. Um, so, so uh, anyway, I think that's just interesting. You know, the Old Testament and Jesus always agree. We're talking about on Sunday morning that uh, Jesus is God and God is Jesus. They're, they're uh, the same yesterday, today, and forever. They're part of the Trinity. They don't contradict one another. They don't update one another. They are perfect expressions of each other. <laughs> um, and here we see the same thing. It's always been, Jesus said that, uh, that the two greatest commandments, or the greatest commandment, really, it's just one with two parts, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you do that, then you will love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the measure of righteousness here is, um, is your relationship with the Father. And the way that we see evidence of your relationship with the Father is the way that you love, uh, love the least of these. Uh, anybody listen to country music? Okay, a few of you. Uh, it's not my favorite, but occasionally I catch a song. Um, as Like when I just have random stuff playing. Uh, who likes the, anybody like the Zach Brown band? Okay, all right. So you might know this song. He he does a song called No Hurry. Uh, you familiar with that song? So uh, there's a verse in there, um, and he says, "Heaven knows I ain't perfect. I've raised a little cane, and I plan to raise a whole lot more before I hear those angels sing. Better get right with the Lord, or there'll be hell to pay. But I ain't in no hurry." Um, so Zach Brown is agreeing with Scripture. He's he's preaching in that song. I mean, I don't, I'm sure he didn't mean to, but he's preaching Psalm 14. He's preaching Romans 3. Um, he, he's, he's preaching to us Matthew chapter 25. And I would just say to back Zach Brown, you better get in a hurry because you don't know when he's coming back. All right? <laughs> you might want to get in a hurry. Um, but even so, what he says here is he says we need to get right with the Lord. We need to get right. And what these scriptures are laying out for us is that that has something to do not with our activities, but with our relationship. Rightness has to do with righteousness and along with atonement and uh, redemption and a lot of the gospel message, it's an accounting term. It's about balanced accounts, right? Um, And so getting right, it's not about getting all your activities right because you can't. That's what the psalmist said. You need to get your relationship right. You need to get your relationship right and the way that you get your relationship right is to know him so you live like him. And I think Zach Brown kind of seems to understand that. He knows that there's, there's no one who does good. I ain't perfect. I've raised a little cane. There's a part of me that doesn't do good. I, and it comes out of all of us. I mean, we identify with songs like that because we hear our story in them. And what I need is I need a Savior. I need a relationship with God in order to be right, in order to align my character with him. And the way that the psalmist begins to clue us in that we do that is that we know him so that we live like him. But here's the problem. If you've got to get right with the Lord and live like him, but no one does what's right, what do you do? Does that just mean we're all going to hell? Yes. Unless 
there's an answer, unless there's a solution, unless there's a Savior. And that's where verse 7 comes in. So Psalm 14, verse 7, the psalmist recognizes the problem, and then he cries out, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now, did you see in your, in your translation, there should be two exclamation points. So if this verse was texted, it would be in all caps. And it would be on purpose. It, just, it wouldn't just be an older person who doesn't really understand like tone and text message. No offense. <laughs> Don't text in all caps. Let me just tell you, that's, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> so if this, but if this verse was texted, it would be on all caps and on purpose. The psalmist, because the psalmist says, the psalmist sees a problem. He sees the problem and he calls for the solution. The psalmist, now David, David didn't get to see the solution. What he's doing here is he's prophesying the solution. He says, oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. See, David knows that the Israelite, that one day a Messiah is coming through his line. It's been promised that there's a king that will always be on the throne. There's a Savior that will come and set all things right, that will fulfill and sustain the covenant that was made to Abraham and then passed on to Isaac and then to Jacob and ultimately to Moses and to the Israelites when they went into the promised land. The psalmist says there's a Savior that's going to come out of Zion. Who is it? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so, so the psalmist says, when we realize there is no hope, our only hope is to cry out to God that salvation would come out of Zion. The wise person recognizes that when there is a dearth of goodness in me, when, when there's a hole in my heart, when there's a lack in my character, our a wisdom cries out and says, Lord, let salvation come from Zion. Let sal- not from me. There's no good in me. But let salvation come from Zion. The wise person must realize that the only thing we've done to contribute to our salvation is perpetrated the sin that required it in the first place. That's, that's our only role in salvation. And that's exactly what Paul finishes his thought in Romans 3. He says, before he said, there will be no one declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But then he says in 21, but now a righteousness from God, a right relationship from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify, David himself testifying here. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, the English word here, believe, I think it's one of the most unfortunate English translations. Not not that it's mistranslated, but just that the word believe lacks a lot of punch. Um, because what the Greek word means... So have you ever heard someone say, well, faith is just a crutch? Have you ever... Like someone, someone said, like, you, just, you just believe that because you need to feel better about yourself and you know, more power to you, but don't try and force that on me. You're just walking on a crutch. Like, you just, uh, like I, I understand that I'm a decent person on my own. Right? That's kind of what people are getting at. But faith, the reason, the reason I don't love the word believe is because it lends to that thought. Like, well, you just need mentally, you're just not strong enough to like understand the world and humanly uh, that you can do good apart from another power. No, it's not that at all. Faith is not a crutch to make us feel better about ourselves, but saving faith is a total reorientation of our lives. Saving faith is a recognition that when I live according to my own, when I, when I look at what, what may be a moral standard what, what, a, what a moral God says is the true and best way to live, and I do it my own way instead when I do what I think is best instead, 
my life always falls apart. It's a reckoned saving faith is, is not just a belief that there is a God. That's what the psalmist has said. The fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. Not just a head belief, but who says no to God, knowing his goodness and knowing the testimony of his love and knowing the testimony of his truth and his wisdom. We still say, no God. There is, it's not there is no God, but we say, the fool says in his heart, no God, no. I'll do it my own way. So saving faith is a total reorientation of our lives. It's, it's a redemptive transaction. It's being purchased from one kind of life in order to be restored to a better one. A good way to think about redemption, uh, there's this place over on the corner of 12th and Washington that restores furniture. Um, I had a good friend in the Topeka church who restored furniture. And I loved, loved, loved like to see a piece of furniture that she acquired and the condition that it was in when she acquired it. So that then, when we saw the picture of what she did to it, you could understand how far it had come to be the piece of furniture that, was looking at, that you were looking at in front of you. The fool, what Psalm 14 says, is the one who thinks that they can reach every part of themselves and sand it themselves. That they, that they, according to their own standard of good, could sand themselves down and reach every nook and cranny with the stain or the paint or whatever, whatever your particular piece of furniture is. But I can't even like wash with soap every part of my body without some kind of extension, some kind of saving <laughs> equipment. You know what I mean? So let alone look in the mirror and be able to see all the rough edges and tend to every part of my heart. No, what we need is a Savior who can see every part of us, who has a perfect knowledge of the way, that, the way that we were designed to be and how to put us back together and restore us with all the nicks and scratches and scars that we've created, how to take those scars and work them back into the beauty that He intended for us. And the psalmist says the, fools thinks, the, the fool thinks he can do it himself. The fool thinks he can take care of it all himself. But the wise person, the congregation, the generation... The, the collection of the righteous, the company of the righteous is the one who recognizes, no, salvation comes from Zion. Salvation comes from a power and a Savior outside of ourselves. And so then he kind of alludes for his Israelite readers, he gives this illustration, he alludes to the story of Jacob. Uh, Jake, here in Jacob and Israel, you, you may know, are the same person, right? Jacob is who he was before he wrestled with God. Israel is who he was after he wrestled God. It's interesting in Psalm 14 that um, the two names are used um, synchromatically. So the, the two words are used, they're not differentiated. Normally, there's 122 other times in Scripture where both Jacob and Israel are used in the same verse. And in all the other instances, they are separated. Jacob is the person, Israel is the nation. But here, there is no distinction made between the two. And it's as if to say to Israel, the nation, Jacob's story of salvation is Israel's story of salvation. The story of salvation for Jacob is the same story that all of God's people will be redeemed. And so he's alluding, he's drawing Israel's attention to the salvation that Jacob receives in Genesis 32. David is being clever to point Hebrew readers and ultimately God's people who study the Scriptures to the fact that we can't save ourselves and we need a Savior. So just a little context re recap. Right? There's and, and I think probably all of you are aware of the story, but for anybody that may listen in the future and just to remind ourselves of the details, 
Uh, there's Abraham, who God makes a covenant with. Abraham has the promised child, Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. Um, Isaac and Rebekah have twin boys, right? And the first one comes out, and he's hairy. And so they didn't have Chewbacca back then, so they just named him Esau, which means hairy. Um, today they named him Chewbacca. Uh, <laughs> and then the second one comes out grabbing the heel of Esau, right? And so they just name him heel grabber. Uh, Jacob. Jacob means heel grabber. It also means deceiver or liar or trickster. Um, and as, as you read the story, the story communicates to you that Esau's kind of a man's man. He loves to be outside. He loves to shoot the bow. He loves to, loves to hunt. Lo- he's, he's, a, he's a man's man, you know. Uh, and Jacob is kind of, he hangs around the, uh, hangs around the tents with his mom and uh, cooks and, and, uh, and cleans and things like that. So uh, you read the story and Esau uh, comes in from hunting one day. He's famished. And the way I like to picture that is like teenagers. Like they come in, I'm starving. You know, like, you know how teenagers do. Like, uh, and you, no food is enough. Like I just imagine that's the desperation in Esau's voice. And Jacob sees an opportunity. See, the reason he was grabbing at the heel, the story indicates, is because the firstborn gets the blessing. They get a double portion of the inheritance. They get, they get, uh, they get the words of affirmation spoken over them and God's favor uh, bestowed on them. And David sees an opportunity. He says, well, I'll give you... Uh, you know, I'm not, I know I'm no, no hunter, but uh, your, food, your food isn't going to do you any good until it comes through my kitchen. And it just so happens I have another stew already brewing, so if you'd like a bowl, you can have it, but you just have to give me your birthright. It's a small price to pay, right? I mean, you're going to die anyway, so you might as well just fork it over, because what good is a birthright if you're dead? <laughs> and so he traded it. And by the way, if you read that story and you're like, who would trade your birthright? That's crazy. It's too high a price to pay. But uh, I would say that all of us would. We just have different flavors of stew that we like, right? Uh, whatever, you know what I'm talking about? We just have different flavors of stew. We all would for the right stew. Um, so then fast forward, like traded the birthright. Uh, apparently there was some tension there, but, uh, but Esau must have felt like, well, I still have the blessing. Well, it comes time. Isaac gets to the age where he knows he's going to He's going to uh, walk into eternity and uh, he, tells, he, tells, uh, he calls Esau in. He says, all right, go and prepare yourself for the blessing. You know the story. He goes out. He's supposed to go out and hunt his favorite wild game and bring it back, prepare a meal for his dad, and his dad will give him the blessing. Rebecca gets wind of that. She goes, gets, goes and gets Jacob and says, you know, uh, God promised that you're going to be greater than your older brother. And so uh, here's your moment. Like, you go and steal, go and take that. Go and take what God promised. Um, and so he, you know, he puts on fake uh, goat hair and cook, cooks him up a meal just like his daddy likes it. And he comes in and Isaac's kind of blind so he can't really tell. So he has to feel him. He has to smell him. And then, uh, and, and, and then my favorite part is like, well, you smell like your brother and you feel like your brother, but you sound like a mama's boy. <laughs> you sound kind of soft. You don't sound like you've been out in the wilderness breathing in the wind and the dust. You sound, you sound like you've been pretty much uh, unhindered in, in, and unsuffered. You know? and, but, he, but he passes. He says, well, the smell he feels, uh, it must be you. And he eats the stew. He gives the blessing. And uh, Jacob steals the birthright, tricks his dad, and steals the blessing. Now, uh, another little side note, just parenting related you can't take back the words that come out of your mouth so when Esau comes in he says but give me the blessing too and he says I can't I've already given the blessing to him and all I have left is curses 
You can't take back the words that come out of your, your mouth. Your children will either live up to the blessings you bless them with or live down to the curses you curse them with. So be careful what you give. Be careful what you give. Uh, Jacob has to run for his life, right? So now the, the result of his deception, the result of his um, self-promotion has come to fruition. He has to run for his life. Uh, he gets out into the wilderness. He lays down on a rock. Now, have you ever wondered why he laid on a rock? Like, that's not how I would lay down. I would, you know, maybe take off my cloak or something, pile it up, or I don't know what I would do, but I would not lay on a rock. But that was actually uh, a spiritual superstition. You lay on a rock like it's an altar to see who the God of the area is. So he lays on the rock, and that's the significance of the dream. So in the dream, there's a stairway to heaven, a stairway to Yahweh. And so he walks away from that believing that God has, he says, I'm highly, he says, I am highly favored. God, is, God has favored my journey. He's favored my actions, my deception, my tricking. And so then he goes on, and that's who he becomes. Now he lives into his name. He becomes a trickster. He becomes a deceiver. And he goes to Laban, and Laban has his daughters, and he sets his eye on one of them to marry them. And, um, and the, tricks, the, the deception of his life and the selfishness of his life actually backfires, and Laban tricks him. You know the story. He comes in, Leah's in a veil, he doesn't know it's not the daughter he fell in love with. And, uh, and he ends up marrying and consummating the marriage with the woman he, he didn't love. And so, that, so now, he's, now he's been deceived himself. He's faced the more consequences from his sin. And so he goes back to Laban. And he barters again for Rachel. And you'd think maybe he'd start to learn, like, hey, deception's not the way. But instead, he deceives Laban. He, he's like uh, breeding the sheep and goats. And he cuts a deal with them, knowing that he can kind of bend the breeding to his favor, manipulating, deceiving, taking advantage of for his own gain. And he ends up having to run from Laban. He marries Rachel. Laban realizes he's been deceived and uh, his riches have been pulled out from underneath him. And he has to run for his life again. Uh, it's kind of a live by the sword, die by the sword kind of life for Jacob. And uh, he's running for his life again. He's taking his family out into the wilderness. And then he gets word Esau track, has tracked him down. Now here's, this is where we're going to pick up in Genesis 32. At this point now, Jacob is terrified and he's preparing to die. He sends all of his family uh, off to safety. He sends them with resources. He sends them with servants to look after them. And he stays behind completely alone. And the story picks up in Genesis 32, uh, verse 22. It says, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So finally his actions catch up with him, and God strips away everything. When we continually manipulate circumstances, when we know, when we know what's right, and we do things according to our own understanding, it's not uncommon that God will strip away everything that we have and everything that we've acquired for ourselves so that we're lying flat on our back and it's just God and us. That's what, where Jacob finds himself. Sometimes God works through our circumstances to get us alone and do some work in us. And so here now, God comes into his life and he's going to wrestle with him. Now it's interesting, it says a man wrestled with him till daybreak, but then later the man is called God. And so a lot of theologians read this and say, well, this is a God-man, a God-man, fully God, fully man. Who's fully God and fully man? Jesus. That's two times, two times tonight. Jesus was the right answer, not just the Sunday school answer. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Christophany is what they call it. 
Um, some people believe that some people believe that this was actually Jesus. Some people don't. But the bottom line is, uh, God reveals Himself in the form of a man uh, to Jacob, and they wrestled until daybreak. And this is an incredibly encouraging picture. I think it's unbelievable that God let him stay in the fight. It says they wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. Like God, at any moment, could have ended the fight, right? Um, God could have given up on Jacob. God could have said, okay, if, you're just, if that's what it's going to be, if it's going to be wrestling all our lives, you know what? I'm done with you. you. I'll find somebody else to bless. It wouldn't be the first time that uh, somebody's foregone their blessing. And... Uh, but he just relentlessly pursues him. He allows him. And I think of like wrestling with my kids. Like when I, I want a relationship with my kids. And so when I wrestle with them, uh, you know, I apply just enough pressure to make them work. You know what I mean? I apply just enough pressure to like teach them how to break out of a hold, to, to allow them to figure out like, okay, what I normally do isn't going to work. So I got to find a new way to get free from this. But I'm not trying to break them. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to push them away or to exert my dominance over them. I'm trying to teach them, to train them, to develop them, uh, and all of that through a trusting relationship that you can wrestle with dad, but he's not going to hurt you. Dad, when you wrestle with dad, you're going to learn, but you're not going to get hurt. And so I see that in this picture. I see God wrestling with his son, wrestling with his kid, and in, in all of his flaws and all of his shortcomings, struggling with him, I, not, not wanting to rule over him, but wanting a relationship, not wanting to, dom- I should say, domineer over him, but wanting a relationship to teach him and to strengthen him and to train him. I think you see this image in Revelation chapter 3 with the image of Jesus. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, I mean, I know that there were times when I was a teenager that my, after, an, after an argument that my parents wanted to kick that door. You know, I locked the door. Your, your kid ever do that to you? And you want to you kick the door down. Like, I'm sure that my mom just wanted to kick that door down. But in God's wisdom... She'd knock. And you could, I, I, looking back on it, I can hear the strain in her voice. You know, Stephen, we need to talk. <laughs> Stephen, we need to talk. You know, I can hear the strain in her voice, but she's exercising patience because the relationship is more important to her because, because she, wants to wrestle, she wants to wrestle with this, wrestle through this with me. And then I see that image in Jesus. If anyone hears my voice and lets me in, I'll come in. Eventually, the match will end, right? There's a day coming where the match will end, but da- and dad will not lose. Like Sometimes when I'm wrestling with my boys, they're just relentless, and they're like, we're, we're going to beat you in my head. I'm like, no, you're not, because the moment I let you beat me, the moment the things get tipped out of balance in this household, and, and, so then, and, I'm, and I'm like, I'm tired, and so then I just like, I manhandle them both and like pin them. I'm like, I'm just going to sit here until you give up. <laughs> until, until, like, I'm not going to hurt you, but I just want you to know, like, I'm dad, <laughs> you know, and eventually that's where God will, God will get to a point where he'll say, listen, I don't want to crush you, but you, I'm God, and, and, and you're not going to win this wrestling match, but I, I want to be in relationship with you, and I want, I want to work towards understanding and knowledge and intimacy and, and love, and that's exactly, that's exactly what, we he, what we see happens next. Verse 26, it says, then the man said, let me, know, let me go for it's daybreak. In other words, okay, I'm done playing around, like, we're, I'm done wrestling, uh, <laughs> But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Now, I think it's really interesting. Um, One of the commentaries that I was reading pointed out that for 20 years in the text that we have, 
He never ever says his name. He never ever acknowledges who he really is. He lies to his dad about who he is. When he goes to uh, Laban in the betrothal process, he never calls on his identity or on his family name. Instead, he, t- he talks about what he will give him. He barters only in exchange, but never talks about legacy. Okay? He, ne- he never acknowledges his true identity. And I went back and I was reading through the story, and there is no point where he, he ever says his name himself. Um, he's always manipulating for his own benefit. And now here with God, he finally gets to a point where he can't manipulate the situation anymore. He, he has to say, who am I? I'm heel grabber. I'm deceit. I'm a liar. I'm, I'm a trickster. And the reason that I'm here alone right now is because this is where my life has led me. This is where my way has led me. And so he admits in that moment, I'm not just a bad person who needs to do better. I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And up to this point in his life, he's been defined by all of his past and present choices, by all of the ways that he has defined his own understanding. But in this moment, when he finally looks face to face with God and admits who he really is on his own, there's nothing good in me. I'm corrupt and I'm vile. On my own, I tend to manipulate and take advantage for my own benefit, even at the expense of people I love and care about. And in that moment, it says, the man said, verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. So God here doesn't drop the hammer. He hits Jacob with a freight train of grace. He says, you have struggled with the brokenness of your nature, with men and with, and with me, all of this time. But in this moment when you have finally admitted your frailty is the moment that you've become strong and I'm giving you a new name now. A new name. The one who, the one who wrestles or the one who, fight, or the one who God fights for. So the question is, the question that we're left to ask is who here needed a name, who, who here has been at a point in their life where you needed a name change? You needed a new identity. You needed something spoken over you that was different than the direction you were going. Who, who might be listening this evening that, uh, that, would, that, that needs a name change right now? The question that the psalmist lays out is would you like to join the generation of the righteous by allowing God to speak a new identity over you? There's nothing good in you on your own, but God will give you something, something new. He'll redeem you and make you whole and take all of your past choices and all of your present choices and all of your future choices and filter them through His grace and transform you into something different and something, something righteous as He is righteous, holy as He is holy. And that comes by faith alone and grace alone. It closes, the story closes, verses 29 and 30. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. So salvation comes at the place of the broken hip. Wisdom comes at the place of the broken hip where we realize our full dependence on God. And in this, I love this picture at the end. Um, we see Jacob has, says, I've come face to face with God, and that's where my life changed. That's where I was given true life, new life. And um, as, as I was sitting there reflecting on, on how to close, uh, it just hit me that Adam was given life when God breathed into his nostrils. Now imagine 
um, if your spouse, I'll say, I was going to say if I, and that would be awkward. Just imagine if your spouse was breathing into your nostrils. What, what, what context or what, or what position would they be in? They'd be face to face. I mean, you would be up close and personal, completely intimate, face to face, breathing, breathing into your nostrils. And so ever since God breathed into Adam's nostrils, it just struck me, we were made for face-to-face encounter with God. We were made, the, ever, C.S. Lewis says there's a God-shaped hole in our hearts. I, I think from the day that we're born, there is a part of us that longs to be in relationship with God because that's the way that we were made. That's how we were literally created. Nothing else can satisfy or give us life except for a face-to-face encounter with God. And that's exactly what the psalmist says. He says, listen, there's no one righteous. We're all fools to some extent or another, and the only hope of joining the company of the righteous or the generation of the righteous is, like Jacob, to have a face-to-face encounter with God. You can't just manipulate and, and, and use your own wisdom to try and sustain a righteous life or um, gain any sort of happiness or satisfaction. That's only going to come. Wisdom recognizes it's only going to come by a face-to-face encounter with God where you recognize that you are fully dependent on Him. Uh, I, th- I think that I know you all well enough to know that, uh, that, that you've all experienced that grace. But I want to encourage you to continually, as, as Paul uh, writes in his letters, to examine yourselves and, and to make sure that you're continuing to, to, to depend only on Him. That, uh, that there's no part of you that has begun to live as a practical atheist, even though you say in your head and that, you, that there is a God. You say in your heart there is no God that I am beholden to. Join the generation of the righteous and live, uh, live into our, your dependence on God. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Uh, how intricate, how intricate and, and wise and, and perfect it is. How, um, how amazing it is to look into um, its depth and realize that there's constantly something new to understand. Here tonight, we've talked about the gospel that uh, we've become so familiar with in our lives by your grace. And yet, uh, at least for me, um, new insight, new depth of insight to how uh, perfectly woven together it is through uh, through creation and time. And uh, God, we just thank you for your faithfulness to pursue us and um, to, uh, to restrain your awesomeness in a way that we can approach it and to extend uh, grace and, and long-suffering patience uh, that, you have, you have, that you're long of nostrils, slow to anger and patiently pursuing us, uh, coming after us constantly, knocking and beckoning and uh, inviting us into relationship and being willing uh, being willing to bless us even after all of our wrestling. Uh, you truly are compassionate and gracious and abounding in love the way that the Scriptures testify. And uh, God, I just pray that by Your Spirit, by, by faith, that Your Spirit would um, help us to maintain faith alone and grace alone. Uh, that we would walk always in the way of the righteous and that we would endure to the end. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.